Welcome to Talking Theology, a podcast of Cranmer Hall Durham, where we explore some of life's big questions and try to join the dots between theology, church and the world. I'm your host, Philip Fleming, Warden of Cranmer Hall. If you enjoy Talking Theology, do subscribe at your favourite podcast provider. Follow us on Twitter or Instagram at Talking Theo and share on social media. Thank you for listening. Now, on to today's episode. What does the ancient book of Philemon have to say to our modern world? What does it mean to pursue our discipleship from a place of discomfort? What are the different authentic voices that need to be unmuted for us to hear from God? And what is reverse mission? And how is God speaking to the church from unexpected places? Welcome to this episode of Talking Theology. In today's show, I'll be talking to the Reverend Dr. Israel Oluwale Olefanjana. Israel is a Baptist minister and director of the One People Commission of the Evangelical Alliance. Among his books is his recently published Discipleship, Suffering and Racial Justice, Mission in a Pandemic World. And our title today is, What are the voices we need to hear to do theology well today? Thank you for listening. Hope you enjoy the show. Israel Olafanjana, welcome to Talking Theology. Thanks, Philip. It's a pleasure to be here and look forward to the conversation. Welcome back to Durham as well, where you came to visit not that long ago, and we'll be picking up on some of all that you shared in our conversation today. Israel, tell us about uh, your current role. You're currently director of the One People Commission of the Evangelical Alliance. Tell us about what that role involves and perhaps some of the roles that you've done on the journey to today. Yeah, so the One People Commission is a network initiative of the Evangelical Alliance. And this was something that started in around 2012. The best way to describe it is it seeks to be a multi-ethnic, multicultural kingdom movement in the UK, drawing together different church leaders from the Black majority church community, uh, from South Asian Christians, Latin American, South Korean, Chinese, etc. And the idea is that we come together to fellowship, to deepen each other's understanding of our various Christianities and how it is expressed, but also to do mission together. Also, part of that includes looking at justice issues. And give us a sense about the roles that you've taken on before this present role of the Evangelical Alliance. So I'm a Baptist minister, ordained and accredited Baptist minister, and I've had the privilege of leading three different multi-ethnic churches in southeast London. But I also do a lot of uh, volunteering for other Christian organizations. So currently sitting on the Commission for Mission for Baptist World Alliance, uh, which is a global network of Baptist churches and denominations across the world. I also do a lot of stuff with the Baptist Union of Great Britain around mission and around racial justice issues. And I also do some work with Lausanne Europe, which is an evangelical movement that brings different uh, voices together, speaking into public life and how we do mission. But I do a lot of research and writing around the areas of black majority churches, reverse mission, which I know we'll talk about later, uh, mission studies, Pentecostal studies, and black majority churches in that sense. So yeah, I'm a minister, but also an academic to, to a lot of extent. 
And we're looking forward to drawing on those insights about mission later on. Now, the the route I want us to take to do that, Israel, is actually starting with a sermon that you preached here at St. John's College in Cranmer Hall a while back, sometime last year, in which you opened up the letter of Philemon for us. Philemon might not be the best known letter in the New Testament for us. So can you just start by giving us a bit of general background to the book and what it's about? Thanks. So... The letter to Philemon, I think, I find it quite fascinating. It's just, uh, it's just one chapter, really. But there are three central characters. There is Philemon himself, who Paul was writing to, and his name is kind of tells the whole story. His name means loving. And I suppose Paul, who was sort of writing to him, was actually putting a demand on his name for him to show love in this particular context because his runaway slave, Onesimus, uh, needed accepting back. So he was kind of mediating and advocating, trying to bring reconciliation into the situation between Onesimus and Philemon in that sense. And so it's a very powerful letter with three key characters, three persons who uh, God brought together. And I suppose we could see a lot of metaphors for us today in terms of conversations around reconciliation, especially what Paul was trying to do to bring the two people together. I think it gives us a kind of a theological framework for how we can do reconciliation work in today's context. I remember you drawing out three very precious insights about this wonderful book and these stories. You've got the apostle, you've got the slave owner or certainly the kind of man of some considerable means, Philemon, and and then Onesimus, this runaway slave, we assume. Just walk us through what the insights were for you about how Paul is doing his his apostolic ministry as part of this letter. So Paul was appealing to Philemon, and I think Paul was very clever. He he was kind of using uh, sort of Greek oratory around, uh, you know, the way you will move people's minds. And uh, so it was moving him logically to think about what was going on. So it was very specific about that. But he also appealed to his emotions, which is sort of his uh, pathos, if you think about those words, logos, pathos. And of course, his values is, is sort of ethos and sort of, taking us through that journey, uh, but then also pressing a name that actually your name means loving. You should be showing love in this. And so the letter has a lot to say around advocacy, around mediation, and around reconciliation and justice, which I think they are themes that has resurfaced into this context. Also, when we look at the name Onesimus, there's something quite powerful about it. It means useful. And I think when you begin to break that down, it's quite powerful. Useful for who and to what extent? Is that actually his real name? And I think these are the sort of questions we can ask the text that can help us to go deeper into it, that can help us into this context. One name means loving and the other means useful. And here was Paul in the middle trying to draw them together and say, hey, how can we make this work together? How can we build a relationship? Because the context is this. We might not see that letter as radical today. And I think here's the point. When we look at New Testament theology that was around in those days, because having slave was a normal part of everyday Greco-Roman culture. And I think the way Paul and the other New Testament writers have talked about it up till now was that actually if you have a slave, if a slave become a Christian, the encouragement was that actually that should make you a better slave. 
But here, Paul was beginning to wrestle with this a bit further, that actually, yes, we want in society for slaves and masters to relate well. But in this particular letter, Paul was pushing the button further and said, actually, you should be accepting the humanity, but also the brotherhood of this person, because this person is human, but also is your brother in Christ. You should love him and you should show him more love than you've been doing in that sense. You've drawn attention to the way Paul kind of acts out of love and encourages Philemon to act out of love too. You've you talked about how he engages in that mediation, but then you've just spoken really kind of powerfully about the way he's pressing the slavery question perhaps more than he's done elsewhere in terms of really saying there is a justice agenda here that needs to be pursued. And one of the things that you you brought out, I remember when you spoke on this, Israel, was when you talked about this is discipleship happening in quite a difficult place. And I think you talked about the place of discomfort rather than comfort. And I think you said something like our discipleship needs to be not consistently rooted in comfort but rather kind of in the uncomfortable places or the places of discomfort. Can you say a little bit more about what you mean by that and why that for you is actually a really important part of what Paul was doing in this moment and what might be relevant for us to do? What really struck me was, you know, the introduction to this letter Paul was writing from prison. And I think the more I reflect on that, the more I reflect on the fact that Paul was about to write a very difficult letter. But the context in which he was writing this letter was not comfort. It was discomfort. It was writing from prison. And I think the challenge that raised for us is this in our theologizing, in our engaging, in our developing theological framework. Are we doing it from a place of comfort or discomfort? Because it seems to me that when we look at the context in which Paul was writing, the situation he was writing into, the discomfort of Onesimus, and also inconveniencing Philemon. To use the word of a black theologian, intercultural engagement should bring about mutual inconvenience. And I think what Paul was doing here was that he was inconveniencing Philemon, but also Onesimus was inconvenienced because of the situation that he was going through because he ran away and he was trying to bring about reconciliation. So there was a mutual inconveniencing going on in here. And I think that is very critical to our discipleship, particularly as we develop multicultural, multi-ethnic churches and conversations, that we engage in a discipleship that say that we are mutually inconvenienced or we are meaningfully integrating along those lines because I think it's very, very important. Too often, our theologizing could be done from a place of comfort. And I think at times that worries me. Even when we look at our perfect example in Jesus, uh, Jesus' model of discipleship was rooted in sacrifice and in suffering. He said, if anyone is going to follow me, pick up your cross and, you know, deny yourselves. That speaks a lot about suffering and sacrifice. And we see Jesus exemplify this by the suffering he went through before he eventually died on the cross. And so that's what Christianity is about. It's about how we understand our theology of suffering and how we ensure that we are not operating from a power dynamics that sort of detaches us from the reality of life. I think that's very important, especially in this post-pandemic season and in this economic pandemic that we are in. I hear the challenge there, Israel, to say it's it's really easy, isn't it, when we're in a place of discomfort to think, well, I've got to sort this discomfort out, get to a place of comfort, and then I can engage with what God is doing and kind of work my theology out. What I'm hearing you say is 
don't neglect those places of discomfort. They could be the very places where you not only do theology for yourself, but also do theology with others. Is that right? Yeah, that's very important. Paul, in other places, talks about a thorn in his flesh. And of course, theologians will argue about what that really is. Is it an illness? Is it something else? But Paul was experiencing discomfort. In fact, one could argue throughout Paul's ministry. I can't really remember any time you could say he experienced a lot of comfort, you know. And I think that's something we have to think about today as Christians, that are we too comfortable? I went to Israel, Palestine recently, and what really struck me was the discomfort that Palestinian Christians were facing. And I think listening to some of the challenges and how that really deepened their discipleship and their theology of suffering was quite powerful. And I find it quite challenging as someone who now lives in the West. And I remember coming back just thinking, are we living in too much comfort? And what does that do to us as a church? What does that do to us as a Christian? It's something I've been asking myself since I came back uh, from Israel, Palestine, just, you know, just seeing the sheer suffering. Uh, that people are facing out there and just asking myself more questions around this. And we are suffering in the UK as well, you know, because of, you know, cost of living crisis, which I call economic pandemic, is affecting every one of us. And I think in that discomfort, what might God be saying to us? Uh, That's very important for this season. And I think the kind of church we need in today's season is actually a suffering church, uh, a church that is rooted in powerlessness, a church that is rooted in marginality, a church that is rooted in vulnerability, a church that is rooted in humility. These are the things that I think we need today's context to be able to make sense of God's mission. Israel, can I come back to something you mentioned earlier around the way in which the Bible has been interpreted when it comes to talking about slavery? And you mentioned the way in which Paul seems to be pressing further into the question of justice and slavery here in the letters of Philemon than perhaps in other passages. But I wonder, can you take us forward to that and help us think about the way in which this passage, this book and and other passages have been read over the centuries by people who have sought to battle against, as it was for many centuries, the transatlantic slave trade. Give us a sense about how this book was used and others and why that matters. So when we look at some of the writings of Paul around slaves and masters, the command is usually slaves obey your master. As I said earlier, if you are not a Christian slave, you should even do better. You should obey them well. And this sort of text that we see Paul writing about in Ephesians, in Timothy, and Peter writing in First Peter as well, and Second Peter, they were used to justify the transatlantic slave trade. And that's actually why it went on for so long, went on for centuries, because the kind of theology the church espoused was that actually we have a biblical rationale to do this because the Bible sanctioned it until you began to have African slaves coming up and actually reading the text and begin to challenge and say, actually, Philemon has a story that is slightly different. And you have an ex-African slave in the person of Olaude Ikwano, 
who was part of the abolitionist movement with William Wilberforce and others who were part of that group uh, who, who were campaigning to end the slave trade. And Olaude Ekwana was one of the people who wrote memoirs of their own experiences of slavery. And I think his experience as an ex-slave elucidated the text in a kind of a post-colonial way to begin to think. In fact, one could say that his thinking was kind of like the first post-colonial way of looking at this letter. Post-colonial in the sense of thinking about the implications of theory and practice sort of bringing an end to colonization in that sense. But in this particular way, looking at it from a biblical perspective and saying, my experience as an ex-slave is terrible. It's not human. So why we will continue this? And it was actually his memoirs and his argument that people like William Wilberforce used in parliament to argue. You have another one from Ghana, Otoba Kogwana, who was another ex-slave. And you have all these people writing about their experiences, looking at reason, looking at nature, looking at biblical texts like Philemon and saying, well, Paul was raising the game here for us. Paul was saying that we should be accepted as brothers and sisters. And so people like Olaude Ekwano started pressing the issue and say there was the need to recognize their humanity and there was the need for slavery to end. Unfortunately, it died before the whole slavery was abolished. But nevertheless, uh, we have his works today, which have survived and is available for anyone to have a look at his memoirs and that of other ex-slaves in that sense. But another critical way of looking at that text that I think is important today, and it's a question I've asked myself and I continue to ask is this, who gave the name Onesimus? Because it means useful. And my summation is this, we probably won't find this in any text, is that I feel that name was a slave name. That's my conjecture. I might be wrong, and I'm open to that. But my conjecture is that I don't think Onesimus is actually his real name, if we apply that post-colonial thinking. I think that was a name that was given to him, possibly by his owner or someone else, because it means useful. Useful for what? Useful to whom? But of course, Paul turned that around that is now useful to me. And so Paul brought a kind of a redemptive language even to that name in a very powerful way that I think again speaks about racial justice. They need to sort of rectify that which is wrong in that sense. One of the things that strikes me as you tell the story there, Israel, of ex-slaves who have brought their own voices to bear as they've engaged with the text and said, hang on, Paul is not condoning slavery in an unquestioning way. We experience this text as something that's fighting for equality rather than injustice. It's the power of their voices that caused the changes to happen. And, and it strikes me, I, I think you mentioned this when you spoke, Israel, about there's something about Paul giving Onesimus a voice even in the letter. I think you used the phrase, he unmutes Onesimus. What do you think is so powerful about that unmuting? And what does it kind of say to the way that we are attentive to the different voices today? I think it's important for us to have a voice in today's conversation because Paul was very much aware that he was writing. Even though Paul was inconvenienced and he was writing from prison, he was writing from a place of discomfort, but I think he was even more aware 
that Onesimus was perhaps even more discomforted than him in that sense. So he, he tried to give him a voice because he knew that there was no way he would probably be able to write or be able to see Philemon without someone writing first. So Paul helped us to unmute Onesimus' voice. And I think the reason why that is important today is because I think there is the need for us to have authentic voices in our conversations. There is something powerful. And so we need polyphonic voices. We need different voices to be unmuted as it is in today's conversation. And when we talk about unmuting people's voice, you know, unmuted group theory is something that a feminist thinker brought up in the 70s by the name of Adena. But one of my friends, Dr. Usha Reifsneider, was actually one of the first people to begin to apply unmuted group theory in the area of Christian anthropology and theology to see how we can use that in our conversations around racial justice. It's an area that uh, myself and a lot of other friends are looking into that. How do we begin to unmute people's voices? Part of that simply means that we begin to look at who are the gatekeepers, who are the people with the power, And is there the need to give up power to be able to unmute other people's voices? So we have to identify who are the dominant groups, who are the dominant voices in order to be able to know whose voice to unmute in that sense. And I think, of course, we've seen a very useful and practical application of this during the pandemic when we all use Zoom and you can't hear someone, you ask them to unmute. And so it's very important to hear what people have to say. And I think because the danger is because theology has been done from one particular stream. So certain communities have a loud voice when it comes to theology. So when Africans, for example, are doing theology, it's usually relegated as, oh, that's contextual theology. But when Europeans are doing systematic theology, that is seen as theology. And I think we need to change that. And the only way we can change that is to begin to unmute theological voices from different continents. Now, that is happening, and we want to encourage more of that, not only in Africa or Asia or Latin America, but in the UK, because we have a lot of majority world Christians now represented in the UK. So we want to continue to unmute those voices in our church conversations, in our theological conversations. Uh, So that's very important. Give us some thought about how we could all go about doing that, Israel. I'm I'm conscious the listeners to this podcast will be people who read, people who listen to other podcasts, people who read blogs, as well as kind of reading their Bibles and saying their prayers. What does it look like practically? What hints can you give our listeners to think about this is how you can be intentional in listening to different voices? Where might people go? So one of the practical things people can do And this, again, will be put forward in the form of questions. Who are the people you read? So what sort of books do people read? Who are the people writing those books? So I want to challenge everyone listening to this. Just look at your library. Look at the kind of books you read. Look at the kind of podcasts you listen to. Who are the people speaking into that? Do you have different voices? Do we have African voices? Do we have Asian voices, Latin American voices? Firstly, it's about what we are consuming theologically, what kind of books or textbooks we are consuming in that sense. So that's a first level. A second level is our churches, you know, how we can begin to bring some of this learning into that space. Again, to begin to look in our churches, who are the people sitting in our leadership teams? 
who are the people leading? Do we have an intercultural leadership team? Because it seems to me that when I look at Acts of the Apostles, chapter 6, when there was a problem in the church, the Grecian Christians complained and felt marginalized in that sense. But when you look at the solution that was brought about, every deacon or person that was nominated in that context, they all had Greek names. And that was because those who complained, they felt marginalized, were the Grecian Christians, uh, you know, from that background. And so in our churches, it is very important to have an intercultural leadership team. That could be in our worship teams. People might say, well, but our church is in a rural area where it's not very diverse. I do understand that. Maybe we can start with inviting guest speakers. Uh, bringing people in or bringing even someone to come and lead us a worship from a different space, from a different context. What this does is just to help us to begin to move, to shift some of the power, to begin to shift some of the dynamics, to unmute different voices in our congregation, in our personal devotions and in our society. You talked about the contribution that African Christians in the UK can make. And you mentioned earlier something called reverse mission. What do you mean by reverse mission and how can that help us be attentive to what God might be saying to us? So reverse mission is simply talking about those who were at the receiving end of European missionary efforts in the past from around the 15th century to the 18th century, you know, coming back and engaging in mission. So previous mission fields will be Asia, Latin America, and Africa with European missions and North American missionaries going. Reverse missionaries are those who are now coming from the continent of Africa, from Asia, and from Latin America into the European space, into North America. So that's reverse missionary. So it kind of brings a post-colonial edge to mission in the sense that there was a time that Europe was never considered a mission field. But now Europe is a mission field. I mean, there are stories of missionaries who have come to the UK. And sometimes people have wondered, but we don't need missionaries or they've not been properly welcomed. But today there is now an acceptance that UK actually do need missionaries because UK is a mission field in itself. And so reverse mission helps us to have different voices. So today a refugee can be a missionary. An economic migrant from Cameroon can be a missionary in the UK. An asylum seeker uh, from another context can be a missionary in the UK. And I think this speaks something about being missionaries from below. That is, today, today's missionaries are not your necessarily well-qualified, well-trained people who have a mission agency sending them with prayers. This is happening spontaneously with different Christians coming from different parts of the world. Uh, some have come as economic migrants, some have come as asylum seekers, but nevertheless, God is using all this to bring about his mission. How we can welcome this in our churches? I think many of our churches do have missionaries that we do pray for, but oftentimes we still focusing on missionaries who go to other parts of the world. And so I want to encourage us that, is it possible to pray for reverse missionaries in our prayer bulletins? I did that once in one of my previous churches. Uh, when someone asked me, oh, can you 
introduce us to a missionary who could help us so that we can hear what they are doing in other parts of the world. And I decided to introduce them to a Kenyan missionary who is in the UK. And when I did that, the ladies group who this person was speaking at, they were not expecting that because their idea of a missionary, an ideal missionary, is someone who goes the other direction, not someone who comes this direction. So we could pray for reverse missionaries. But also the other thing is, in our churches, can we recognize those whom God might have called into our midst? They might not even use the term reverse missionary because they might not even understand it. But are there people in our churches who have come from other parts of the world that God has sent as a gift to us? Diversity is a gift to the church. And I think we need to embrace it. And so if we have those people, how can we welcome them? How can we embrace them? How can we help to nurture their gift so that they can function and participate in the life of the church as it is. You've shown yourself enormously skilled, Israel, at taking texts from 2,000 years ago and bringing them into very kind of prophetic challenge to our world today. And you've spoken powerfully about how that challenges all of us seeking to follow Christ. Can I ask you about how it has affected your own journey as a Christian disciple. How does continuing to research and explore mission as it was then, mission as it is now, how has that fed your own prayers, your own worship, your own walk of faith? I think I've had to go on a journey of deconstructing myself. (laughs) And what I mean by that is uh, relearning some of the things I learned before my Theological education was in Nigeria, but despite being in Nigeria, most of the things that we were still being taught were still very Western. But thank God there was some introduction to some of African theology, and that became a learning point for me to learn about African theology, to learn about the African church and African church history, which goes way back into biblical times. And just beginning to unpack that and to understand my own identity as an African and understanding that actually as an African Christian, my Christian roots go way back to biblical times was quite powerful and was quite liberating for me. And I think I operate with that sort of confidence, but also realizing that the gospel is about sacrifice. I think that became a key point for me in in my journey of discipleship. And the way I've been brought up is around discipleship being rooted in suffering and sacrifice. And so that's something I keep before me and something I try not to lose sight of. Now, wherever I find myself in life, whatever God might have done to keep myself humble and to keep myself in that place where God can speak through my brokenness and through the sacrifices and through the suffering that continues to go on. And so I try to always keep myself in that place is a continual journey. That has been my journey, the learning, relearning some of the things I've done together and then researching some of that to deepen my understanding of the biblical text, but of history, of theology, to understand the world around me so that be able to speak intelligently and to speak around justice into some of the issues of today. Israel, you've given us lots to reflect on, to pray through for ourselves and for others. We're very grateful. Israel Olefanjana, thank you so much for appearing on Talking Theology. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you very much. You have been listening to Talking Theology, a podcast from Cranmahal, Durham. Cranmahal is a theological college within St. John's College in the University of Durham, 
training people for ministry in the Church of England and other denominations. Find out more about us at cranmahal.com.